Hola. Oh, I'm so sleepy this morning. I've had all kinds of coffee, hydration. I'm just, oh, I'm so sleepy. But I, of course, am so inspired and grateful for the word of God. I've been on a, on a hunt over here to defend the word of God. We'll get to that at the end because I love to defend the word of God. Um, there's a lot to learn from this, um, today's chapter. Let's, let's confirm the date here. February 8th, Matthew 8. Why don't I do that before I start studying? <laughs> Hello, I'm assuming this is Tammy. Hello, Brenda. Um, Hello, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. So, right off the bat, I went on a rabbit hunt in Matthew 8. Very first verse says, let's see if I can get closer here. I know you're reading your own Bible and you're just listening, but when he was come down from the mountain, that took me by surprise because, you know, I'm, I am studying this and reading this day by day. I'm, I'm not really reading ahead, except if I have to, which of course you'll see today how I had to do that. But this is super important when he was come down from the mountain, because that means all of this information right here is all with his disciples and not with the crowds. And that is that that it actually explains so much to me. It helps me just understand so much. So all of this of this information that, that we've talked about in uh, Matthew 7 yesterday, of course, what you read in Matthew 6, Matthew, um, it all starts with right here, lets us know, oh, stars huffing and puffing to go outside. Matthew 5, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, saying things like the Beatitudes, um, how you hang, handle anger in Matthew um, 6, Matthew 7, which is what we talked about yesterday. Um, all of that meaty information. Oh, I got to let Star out. All of that meaty information was to that select group of people. It was not to the masses. That's very important. I'll be right back. You need to go outside? Okay. There you go. I'll have to let them back in in just a second. So that was just interesting to me that, you know, I'm not reading ahead. And so to, to realize that, of course, of course, that's the wisdom of Jesus Christ. You know, we we find out, I, I believe it's Paul that writes later in the epistles and says, 
I, I wanted to feed you meat, but, but you weren't able to handle it. I had to keep giving you milk. When we come into the church, we are, uh, uh, we are babes in Christ. We are born again. Christ says you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when we're born again, we are the equivalent of a baby. We need more help. We need, and, and the information that we give those recently born again is we have to use wisdom. We cannot give a baby steak. We give a baby milk and they develop into their digestive system being able to hold different foods and more foods. And, and, uh, boy, you stay up at night with a colicky baby, you're going to be super careful about what you give that baby. And, and that's the way it is when people come to God. When people first come to God, they, they need, um, they need that the word of God through a strainer for a little bit until they develop the ability to handle meaty topics. And, you know, as I was reading this over the last couple of days, I was really um, surprised at how meaty the information was. If you heard what I taught yesterday, that's, that's, that's steak. That's steak talking about the straight gate and talking about judging and, and who to judge and, and be careful about judging because you'll also be judged. And <laughs> that is meaty matters. And, um, and that makes so much sense when I read Matthew 8, 1, when he was come down from the mountain. Matthew 5, 1, it says, uh, let's see, is it in camera here? Matthew 5, 1. Jesus separated himself from the multitudes. When he saw the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. I've got that when he was set underlined because that's a, another important study for us to have in our minds. Um, so let's resume on with, with Matthew 8. Um, down here in verse 4, after Jesus heals a leper... Um, he says something that people are often questioning. See that thou tell no man. See that thou tell no man. We have a hard time understanding this on a lot of levels. For one, um, you know, when, when something good is going on, we want more people to know about the good that is going on. I, I am a sharer. Oh, my word. Anything that I love. I am sharing. I cannot help myself. That's that's why I'm so engaged with social media. Um, but I was like this before social media came out. Whatever book I had, I wanted everybody to read that book. And I I took it to school. I told everybody about that book. Um, whatever music I was listening to, uh, pictures. Um, and before social media ever came along, I've always been a sharer. And so social media just met, met its match when it met me. <laughs> and, and that you can see that happening even with the Bible. I cannot just enjoy it myself. I have to share it. My mother is like that. My mother has taken all of her children on their 30th anniversary she wanted to, for her 30th anniversary, she wanted to go on a Mediterranean cruise. She opened it up to anybody in the church who could go. 
My mother is a sharer. She wants to experience things with other people. And she did the same thing on her 50th anniversary. She didn't just want to go to Europe for her 50th anniversary. She wanted to share it with every one of her children and her in-laws and her grandkids. It just comes naturally to me. So this is hard to understand. See that you tell no man. Like, what? Why? Why, are, why can't we tell everybody? Well, in Mark 1, 45, we see why. A, a reason why, not the only reason why, but a reason why. And I'm not going to flip there right now, but it's it's because he he became famous. And and it's very much like a movie star today. Um, I've, I've heard people talk about how they remember their last meal before they got famous, you know, movie stars or TV stars or, or whatever. They, they remember their last public transportation before they got famous because the minute they were famous, you can't get down a sidewalk without being, without people stopping you for autographs and photos and whatever. And, and so Jesus still had work to do and he did not want that hindered. He, he was not about being famous. He was about doing good. And he knew that once his fame spread abroad, they weren't going to let him take two steps. And we see that in Mark 1, he couldn't enter into the town because he was so famous, so he had to go out into the wilderness. So, you know, we've got to use wisdom in how we do things. I believe that we're at a place now where we should feel fully released to tell about every miracle, every sign, every wonder, everything that God has done so that the masses can come in. But that's why Jesus was saying, see that you tell no man, he was a man of humility and he was trying to, and he was a man of wisdom. He was trying to keep that in control. And then this is a beautiful thing here, um, where he heals this man of leprosy and he says, tell no man, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. So again, he's going back to the law and the law there was something that you needed to do if you were cleansed from leprosy. And that's found in Leviticus 14 verses one through four. And what he was, what the command is, is that you take two doves and you kill one and you, and you take the second one and dip it in the blood of the first one that was killed. And while in our modern day, we don't understand that because we love our animals and we're not into animal sacrifice and we don't have to be because this was all symbolic of what was to come. And what was to come was the symbolism. This was this offering was symbolism of Calvary. Jesus Christ was the first dove killed and we are dipped into his blood when we repent of our sins, when we're baptized, we take on, we connect ourselves to what he did on Calvary. And it's just a leprosy has always been symbolic of sin. Um, you know, if you, if there's just a spot of leprosy, as soon as you discover leprosy, there's all kinds of things a person would have to do. And it's always been symbolic of sin. And so this, this whole thing right here is also a sim symbolism of sin. Now, I've got to say, I did not do this research myself, but I have heard um, that 
the priests never had to do this because they had never had anyone healed of leprosy before. I, I'm not positive about that. I've not done the research myself, but I will pass that on that, that I have heard that. You can do that research for yourself. And then we get into this this part in Matthew 8 where um, a centurion, so this is a Roman, who of course the Romans were the conquerors of Israel. So there were a lot of people that had a problem with the Romans. However, he had a good reputation um, because he he took care of of the Jewish people around him. Um, and he came and said that he had a servant that was sick of palsy and was grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the centurion said, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but say the word only. And then the centurion describes authority. I'm a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this centurion was saying, I understand how authority works. You don't have to personally come and touch my servant for him to be healed. This man had an insight into the spiritual realm and how spiritual matters work. And Jesus was just taken aback by this man's insight and revelation. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. So far, the only faith that Jesus had encountered had been that elementary, immature level of faith that requires one person be present, a physical reputation of a, a representation of a person be present to facilitate a spiritual move. This is the first time that Jesus encountered somebody understanding that the spiritual realm operates in such a, a powerful extent that Jesus himself didn't have to be there for it to happen. And this kind of level of faith is what is required for spiritual growth. If the only way you get a touch from God, you encounter the presence and spirit of God, is if you've got somebody else with you to lay hands on you and pray, you are still operating at a very immature level in your faith. When you come to a place where you understand that your own prayer can summon and bring the power and presence of God, and we're going to see that in this chapter later as well. When you understand that, that's a level of maturity that, that you are operating in. You don't have to have someone lay hands on you for you to be healed. You don't have to do that. You can get a hold of God. You can break barriers in the spirit by your own prayer. And that's what this man was understanding. He was understanding how the spiritual of uh, the spiritual authority worked. And Jesus was like, whoo, this is great. Because now once people start understanding it this way, now Jesus is going to begin to help his disciples operate in this way. 
And this centurion, this Roman centurion was the first one to bring this understanding. And then Jesus went on to say, many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac in the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's talking about eternity. When eternity comes, he's saying there's going to be Gentiles from the east and the west. They're going to end up coming from everywhere. Jesus was letting them know that those Gentiles were about to be grafted in. And they're going to sit down with Abraham and Isaac in the kingdom of heaven. And But the children of the kingdom, he's talking about the present people who Jesus was there with giving the first opportunity through all this, through Genesis all the way through until John the Baptist, they had the first opportunity, but they were not operating in that faith. And because they weren't operating in that faith and able to receive the newness that was coming, which was from John the Baptist until now, and because they weren't able to accept it, he's saying they're going to be cast in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of cheek and gnashing of teeth. And I say that we need to check ourselves I need to check Danae Richardson. You need to check yourself if you are listening to this and make sure that you are learning that just because you have the Holy Ghost, you have this insight of hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You are focusing on the will of God, the faith of God does not mean that you do not still need to develop and mature into this level of operation in the spirit. Because if we stop growing, the fact that the children of the kingdom are able to be cast into outer darkness means that even though we who have been grafted in, we are also able to end up as those cast into outer darkness when our time to face eternity comes. So check yourself. I need to check myself. We need to be operating in these levels of maturity. We've got to stop operating immaturely where the only way we can have a move of God is if we're surrounded by everybody who is also, you know, having a move of God. Now, where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. There's nothing wrong with having other people around. That's how it works. But also understanding that the spirit realm operates in this way is important for us. Okay, and then Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. This was an amazing time period. All these miracles are are happening here. Um, Many that were possessed with devils, he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled by the prophet Isaiah, which of course is Isaiah. He himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. Isaiah 53, 4. Oh, this passage, I, I, I'm not going to take the time to go into it right now, but I was very moved reading Isaiah chapter 53. Just the goodness of God, the goodness of God. So beautiful. And then what it takes to be a disciple. This is important. This is important. Let me take a swig of water here. This is important for ourselves as we are seeking to be disciples, as we are following in Christ's footsteps. 
When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart into the other side. A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, a scribe, you've got to remember all the times that he has previously and that he will still in the future through his life have some very pointed things to say about scribes and Pharisees. And so this is a big step for the scribe to take. This scribe was separating himself from those who already considered themselves to have arrived in a religious standpoint. And and he was stepping out from them to say, Master, I will follow thee. And he's calling Jesus Master. That's what you called somebody that, that you wanted to teach you. I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus saith unto him, the foxes have holes, the birds have the, have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where, where to lay his head. In other words, I don't have a house. I, I'm not here to develop my real estate portfolio. I'm, I am here traveling around. I am deliberately not putting myself in, not putting down roots. Are you sure? This is what you want to do. Are you sure this is what you want to do? We don't know what the scribe's decision was, but Jesus was laying out the cost. He was laying out the cost. I don't know if it's in Matthew or if it's in another one of the gospels, but Jesus tells a parable where he says, um, no man builds a tower without first setting down and counting the cost. No man goes to war without first setting down and counting the cost. That's what Jesus was laying out here. Jesus was not about uh, uh, making following him seem like a bed of roses. He was He was not about the sales pitch being... I can heal you, I can deliver you, I can make your life a lap of luxury, I can bless you with all kinds of blessings. That wasn't Jesus' salesman's sales pitch. Jesus' sales pitch is, you're going to follow me? I mean, like, foxes and birds have houses, and I don't know where I'm going to be sleeping tonight. Are you sure you want to follow me? And, and another disciple said, Lord, allow me to first go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, Jesus was a compassionate man. But there are some times that what we are called to do is inconvenient and not what the rest of everybody is doing. I'll, I'll tell you a, a situation that falls in line with this, this exact phrase, let the dead bury their dead. By the way, Jesus was calling the dead, those living people who were not drinking of his living water that he had already offered the lady at Samaria. 
the lady at the well. Let the dead, these living people, they are walking around dead. They are not pursuing the life of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are walking dead people. When he said, let the dead bury their dead, he is saying, let those people who are not pursuing the life of God bury the dead. And we know that that Christ had compassion on on families who had someone deceased. Um, but But every once in a while, there comes a situation where because we are disciples of Christ, we're not going to engage in the the normal tradition of how we function in marriages or deaths or we're we're just not going to engage in it not because it's a sin or because we shouldn't but at that moment there is something of the kingdom of God because we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because we are seeking first the kingdom of God there are some times that we are not going to participate in the regular behaviors of life. A situation, I'll point out a situation where this literally happened. My mother, before she was married, she traveled with another lady and they were evangelists traveling from church to church and they were a very powerful duo. And um, the, the other lady preached my mother was not a preacher, but my mother is a prophetess and she operated in the gifts of the spirit. And both of them were dynamic, amazing singers. My mom says over half of the time that they were out evangelizing, they would always sing before the other lady preached. I'm named after her. Her name is Janice. Uh, I don't know if it's her middle or first name. That's Elaine, but my name is Danae Elaine. I'm named after her. Uh, anyway, um, my they would always sing, and they were so such dynamic, anointed singers that my mom says over half the time, the gifts of the spirit would start operating during singing, and that's all that would end up happening in the service. And and my mom and and my aunt Janice would go to these um, churches. And um, they would be in revival for six, eight, 10, 12 weeks every night of the week. <laughs> when we have revival now, like at, at my church anyway, we try to only have revival services when we already have scheduled services. So that means we will bring in a guest preacher who will preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, and that's it. Whereas um, every rare once in a while, we will also include a Friday night. So we'll do Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday morning, Sunday night. But when my mom was evangelizing in the 1970s, um, it was common to do every night of the week. And if, if you're listening to this and you've been living for God for very long, you know that that, that is, um, you remember those revival services yourself. But my mom was in the middle of one of these revivals and my grandfather, her dad was having to have a leg amputated because of, um, he had diabetes and he was having a leg amputated. And my grandma called and, you know, Naomi, I need you to come home. And my mom wanted to go home. And, um, my mom was going to buy her own plane ticket and go home. And, um, the pastor 
asked my mother not to do that. He said, Sister Naomi, we are just having such revival. If you will stay, I will buy your ticket for you. This, you know, I, I guess it was probably Monday or whatever. The surgery was going to be on a Friday or Saturday. If you will stay through the weekend, I will buy your ticket for you to go home and be with your dad and, and then fly you back to continue revival. And so my mom called my grandma and, and told her, you know, what this pastor was asking of her and asked if that was okay. And my grandma said, okay, you know, my, my mother, by the way, was a terrible person before she was saved. She was constantly stealing <laughs> from stores. She was a thief. She was in juvie. She fought fistfights. She was a brute. My mom was a was too, a woman to be reckoned with when before she got saved. And so my grandma had prayed for so many years for my mom to be saved. And so when um when my mom was saved and, and not just saved, but now out working for God, my grandmother was so happy about that. And um she she, you know, kind of cried and, and uh said that's okay, you know. But she didn't like it. But after she got off the phone and my grandma was praying, she said, this scripture came to her, let the dead bury their dead. And she called my mom back and she said, Naomi, I'm so sorry that I was crying on the phone with you before. The Lord told me, let the dead bury their dead. And she said, that's what I'm doing. You go have revival, girl. You go have revival. And my grandfather did not die. He had the surgery. He had his leg amputated and, and my mom got a free plane ticket to go home and see her parents for um, however many days she was there and went back. But that's a story in our family where the Lord spoke to my grandmother or it, my grandmother had such a sweet attitude. She came to this, to this, let the dead bury their dead. And so we say that all the time when we're working for God and we'd rather be doing something else, but we're going to prioritize the work of God. We say, oh, all right, Nellie said, let the dead bury their dead. <laughs> but Count the cost to be a disciple of Christ. We need to count the cost. Jesus never gave his disciples the best sales pitch to bring us into what we're doing. To be a disciple of Christ is a big deal. And he, God never gave us a beautiful, golden, shiny sales pitch. Count the cost. And um, getting to the last couple of points here, the next thing that happens is um, where Jesus calms the sea. And it's, it's a point that I came to many years ago that I think is very important. It, it really is a callback to this place here in um, where the centurion had this understanding of the spiritual realm, this level of faith that he had. Now, the disciples have already recounted this level of faith. They've already seen him kill, I mean, not kill, they've already seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law. And now then they're here on the sea and they are afraid and they woke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. The first thing Jesus said is, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? To me, this is a, this is a, a 
statement of frustration from Jesus because they should have, they need to be coming to an understanding that he does not have to do every little miracle that happens. As a matter of fact, we're about to see him send out the disciples in twos. Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? He arose, rebuked the winds. There was a great calm, and the men marveled what manner of this man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him. Well, I know the peace speaker. I know him by name. But Jesus is trying to convey to us that we have the ability to say to a mountain, be thou removed, and to say to a sea, peace be still. And we have to realize that we walk in that authority. And if we don't realize it, then we need to call back to this situation right here where he says the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness because they aren't operating in this level of faith that the centurion was operating in. Understanding spiritual authority, your level of spiritual authority is very important. You need to start saying to your own storms, peace be still. To your own mountains, be thou removed and cast into the sea. Okay, and then we're going to end with the, the demoniacs. So this is a defense of the word of God. This is, this is something you need to learn in case you ever come across somebody who says the Bible contradicts itself. Um, so this is a very close description of Jesus with legion. Oh, somebody's coming along. Stars let me know it. Um, and the story of legion is in Mark 5. We're going to talk about it here in a minute. And, oh, in Luke. I didn't write down the Luke passage, but it's also in Luke. I'll have to write it down when I finish this. And the story of the man called Legion is very similar to this. It's one man filled with so many devils that when, um, when he falls down and worships Jesus, that's something actually I just realized about this. <laughs> That's a difference in this as well as in that, as in those other stories. Legion, um, when Jesus comes to him, he falls at Jesus' feet and, and worships. And the, the demons cry out and say almost this exact same thing. What have we to do with thee? Why, why have you come to torment us before our time? And they asked to be cast into swine. The devils besought him saying, Allow us to go into the pigs. Jesus said that. The swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea. Okay. So here's where people say that this is a contradiction because the other gospels tell this story and there's only one man filled with demons. And this one, when he was come to the other side, there met him two possessed with devils. Coming out of the tombs. Coming out of the tombs is another description of the man called legions. Um, exceeding fear so that no man might pass that way. Um, yeah, so people say that they, they are the same account, but they have 
gotten it wrong. There's either one man filled with legions of demons or there's two men filled with demons. But they are not the same. They are not the same. And what breaks my heart is that even commentators, you know, people who who it's their their full-time study of theology that um I need to tighten this stand here. It's their full-time study of theology that that aren't catching this. Oh. So anyway, I did a little did some digging. And the other reference, this is, we're, of course, reading in Matthew 8. The other reference is Mark 5. And again, it's that place in Luke that I forgot to write down. Man, that bugs me that I forgot to write that down. Um, in Matthew 8, when he was come to the other side into the country of the Jergesenes, Jergesenes, whatever it is. <laughs> Here it is closer. Jergesenes, Jergesenes, however you say it. It is de- That word means a stranger drawing near, which first of all, oh, I can preach on this. Oh, I can just preach on this. A stranger drawing near. And in Mark 5 and that other place in Luke, it is the country of the Gadarenes. And when you read the commentaries, the part that's sad is they say that um, some people pronounced it Gadarenes and some people pronounced it Gergesenes. And I can see how that sounds sort of familiar, but they literally mean two different things. Gadarenes means reward at the end. Jergesenes means a stranger drawing near. They mean two different things. They literally have two different definitions. Why do people want to default to this this idea that the Bible contradicts itself? Why would they default to that? Even theologians default to that. Um, Gadarenes, first of all, this this I've I've outlined E N E S Eens. That's like, um, that's, that means a person, the country of these people. Like uh, America, if you live in America, you are an American, okay? If you live in America, you are an American. Um, the book of Ephesians is written to people in Ephesus. If you lived in Ephesus, you were called an Ephesian. So um, the actual name of the of the city was Gadara or Gadara, Gadara. And so the country of the Gadarenes, this is the kind of people who live in Gadara, Gadarenes. And Gadara was the capital of uh, Perea. And it says some distance from the lake of Gennesaret on the banks of the river higher omax inhabited chiefly by gentiles okay so they get off of a lake where there was a storm and they go some distance from that lake to a place on the banks of a river the river of hieromax inhabited chiefly by 
Gentiles. That is Gadara, that is the Gadarenes, and that's what we find in Mark 5 with the man called Legions, and also in Luke, I'll write it down later, you can look it up yourself. Um, this Gergesarenes, again, this is the people of uh, G-E-R-G, I think it's A. But it is a little place, a little place that's belonging to the city of Georgisa which is assumed to have been situated on the shore of the lake. So this is some distance from the lake. This is on the shore of the lake. And furthermore, just to defend the word of God and talk about how there is no contradiction within the word of God, um, we're going to, where is it at? Matthew 9, yes. Tomorrow, we're going to read about the woman who had the issue of blood and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. <laughs> I don't know why theologians don't automatically assume that Jesus is doing the same type of thing multiple times. We know he's, he healed multiple blind people. He, he healed multiple lepers. And... and why don't they assume, why would they say the Bible is contradicting itself? Why don't they assume Jesus is, is an encountering a different scenario, but a similar scenario? And, and to, to talk about that and how that happens is tomorrow we're going to read in Matthew 9 about the woman with the issue of blood and she touched the hem of his garment. Well, guess what? In Matthew 14... And in Mark 6, after the one woman touched the hem of his garment, we find many people touching the hem of his garment. So it, the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible does not contradict itself. It is perfect. Oh, if, if you could see me gritting my teeth, you'd know I do this when I see a cute baby and when I love my doggy. It is perfect. To its core, it is perfect. It does not contradict itself. It is the infallible word of God. It takes a pinch of research to show it to be true. Oh, I love the word of God. Thank you for joining me today. Have a great day.